Well, hey there, friends. Uh, Steve Leans, as always, welcome to This Good Word. Today, I am letting you listen in on one of the most fun things I've ever done. Uh, my friends, Stephen Heidi Haynes, aka Tove Music, and Sean Smucker and I uh, teamed up to do a live podcast at Art House North. Uh, which is run by Troy and Sarah Groves, who I just love so much. And we talked, we listened to music, we listened to Sean's readings of a couple of his books that I just love. And it, it was magical. I mean, it really was. I wish you could have been there. But since you weren't, we thought we would release the audio. So uh, listen in, you're going to have a blast. Uh, and then after you listen in, or before, or during, head over to tovemusic.org, T-O-V music.org, and you can buy tickets to Tove Music's uh, CD release party, which is here in the Twin Cities, if you live around here. You can also listen to their new single and purchase their new record. So it is, uh, it is so good. And head on over to seansmucker.com and check out his writing. He is so gifted, so good. Lastly, make sure to check out arthousenorth.com because they have a lot of good stuff going on, especially if you live here in the Twin Cities. Okay, everybody, without any further ado, get into it. It's so much fun, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. I know you will. Peace. A lot of new friends here, and some longtime friends here. Great. I was just realizing that this night started because I, I, Steve said something on Facebook about doing a podcast live somewhere, and I said, why don't we do it at the art house on his feed? He's like, why don't we do that? And here we are. <laughs> How does that happen? Um, so yeah, the, the internet. So, um, this is the art house. I'm Troy Groves. This is my wife, Sarah, and our three kids are running around here and Maddie Reimer is here as well, runs a lot of our programming and things. Um, and we endeavor to, uh, support creative community for the common good. We've been here about seven years. Uh, we're a branch of the art house out of Nashville that was started about 25 years ago. Um, and there's another one in Dallas. And um, we are, you know, attempting to support artists in the, in the community. Um, and it's actually been quite different from what we thought when we started. It's been a lot more neighborhood involvement. And we live in the neighborhood here. Um, and then about like three years ago, this church moved in on our on the corner of our block called Awaken Community. And um, just an incredible blessing and kind of opening doors up to a whole lot of new faces and friends and people. And the resonance with what was being shared there from uh, Micah and Laura and the staff and our hearts, it just like rang like a bell. And we just can't believe we're here and like we would drive a hundred miles to go to this church or to be a part of, you know, the community that that church draws and Genesis and others. And then to have Steve come and share with us and to be a part of Rabbi Allen's studies. And it's just been an unbelievable gift of God. We have a, a bit of a busy life. I work for a human rights organization in DC. 
my wife is on the road a lot, traveling. So an unbelievable gift from God that we get to walk to church on Sundays and simplify that day for us is, is wonderful. Um, but we're here to support artists in this community and in this neighborhood and attempt to draw folks um, closer into community with each other. So coming up this fall, we have a, a concert, John Mark Nelson, if you've heard of him. Uh, he's going to be doing a concert. He just announced that a couple days ago. So that'll be right here. We only seat about 140 people, like max, like fire marshal. We're in trouble if they show up, Max. He's only doing one show in town this year. He's so just doing that be. one show this year, so that'll be uh, his home show. And that'll be here, so if you go to arthousenorth.com and check that out, uh, you can find out. We also have uh, theater performances happening on a regular basis, spring and fall. There's kids programs. We have a, um, uh, a rock band, a school of rock uh, of sorts during the school year here. There's theater, kids theater, drama programs. So, all kinds of stuff happening. We're just grateful that you guys are here and, and we're here together. Sarah wanted to say a few words and introduce our guest. Well, we were talking that maybe we met 20 years ago, we think. We were at the same event anyway. And we, we said we hope we met. I hope we got to shake hands at that point. We have lots of connections with Mary as well um, over the years. But what a joy this last couple of years to get to really intersect um, to spend time together, to hear your hearts, and to feel this um, overwhelming, ringing, as Troy said, resonance that we're not alone with our thoughts. We're not alone in the way we want to approach and think about who God is and what this holy writ might mean to us. And, and so we are more than honored that you would host or have this night or be a part of this night here at the Art House North. Please help me welcome Steve Weens. Hi. You guys came. Hi, Annie, all the way from wherever it is that you live now. Oh, you live all over the place. You need a laptop and a car. That's all you need. Uh, so uh, welcome to This Good Word, the podcast. So everyone knows how to do a live podcast, right? Everyone knows? Because I have no idea how to do one. <laughs> Never done one before. And um, when people started asking me, like, well, what's kind of the vision for the night? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm getting some friends together and we're going to have fun. I mean, we're, we're, we're going to share our art and that's what we're going to do. And so uh, I'm going to introduce Stephen Heidi Haynes of Tove Music in a second. My friend, Sean Smucker, the author, is back there with his wife, Miley. So welcome, Sean. They uh, drove here from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And you guys, when I saw, when I was on errands and I drove into my driveway again, I saw your little Mini Cooper. I... In my mind, you drove a wagon, like a big, huge station wagon. That was in my mind. So I was shocked when I pulled in and Mini Cooper, no, this is all wrong. This is not right. It's not right. Um, so here's how tonight's going to go. Uh, Steve and Heidi will play a couple of songs. I'm going to ask them some questions about uh, this record that they have coming out in October. Come on now. Singles coming out on August Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. August 20th. Singles coming out soon. Yeah. Matt, when is it? Matt End of August. Yeah. All right, Matt's gone. <laughs> Matt's at the bar down the street. <laughs> no, there he is. Uh, and then uh, Sean is going to do some reading from 
both of his books, The Day the Angels Fell and The Edge of Over There, and you're going to fall in love with this. This it's it's midrash really is is, is what it is, and it's this beautiful story of um, what happened after the Garden of Eden, uh, and so good. And then I'm going to give a talk about what has happened from the first century until now, and. You think I'm kidding. I'm really not. <laughs> I feel lonely in, in the world right now spiritually. I feel like uh, I don't know what's happening. I feel sort of unmoored. Um, not that I am losing my faith, but I feel like my faith is losing me. Uh, and I think that's a general sense of where many of us are at right now. And so meeting people like Troy and Sarah, Stephen Heidi, uh, Sean and Miley and many of you out there is, Sarah said it right, it's, it's really helpful to feel like there's some resonance with other people that are asking some questions that have to be asked if we're going to um, hold on to any kind of faith that has integrity moving into the future. So um, then we're going to have an intermission. There will be beautiful food, beautiful food. It'll probably be beautiful, but hopefully it'll be delicious food from Break Bread, just on, 7th, on West 7th, and there's some wine, and um, if you need to get up and get some more wine during the show, that's fine. If you need to go to the bathroom, that's fine. It's downstairs, uh, and then after the intermission, Stephen Heidi will play a couple more songs, and Sean will do another reading, and, um, and then we'll all drink some, you know, we'll all drink the Kool-Aid, and, and we'll join a tribe of people that are going to change the world, right? That's what's going to happen. Um, that wasn't in the notes. So I do want to say about Art House North, um, please, if you're not connected to this place, go to arthousenorth.com, sign up for their email newsletter, and you'll get all kinds of um, um, info about upcoming shows. Uh, what they are doing um, in the neighborhood here is beautiful. It's, it's um, bringing in artists for the common good of this neighborhood. And Troy just told me that they're starting a Patreon, um, what do you, account, page? What do you call that? But it's a way to support artists that you love. And so um, if you follow um, me and my stuff, I'll share how to support Art House North and their Patreon page. Sarah's doing some bonus content, like these interviews with different people that is only going to be available if you're a patron. So get all over that. Um, okay. Everybody deep breath in. Let it out. Feel your feet on the floor. Feel your butt in the seat. Here you are. And the invitation tonight is to be here. Be here. Be here with your sweat. <laughs> be here with your hunger. Be here with your joy your loneliness, your questions, whatever it is, um, be here and enter into this moment because it's a gift that we will give you, but that you will give us and you will give each other. Um, so, Stephen Heidi Haynes, ladies and gentlemen, give it up. Oh, thanks. I've known, <laughs> these, I've known these people for 10 or 12 years. They've been married for 15 we have three kids. 
uh, Trini, Berlini, and Kai Kylo Ren. Are you guys in the room? Yeah. Oh, hi, guys. Hi, guys. Uh, they're a part of Genesis, and um, I love these two. They, they live life real and out loud, and, um, and I love the way you've supported me in my journey um, of trying to create art and church and words. And so it's my joy to share a stage with you. Um, and have we ever done this kind of thing before, like this? We've done church, but I don't think we've done this kind of thing. So that's a first. Okay, so you have this record coming out. Uh, first of all, what's it called? It's called Confluence. Why is it called Confluence, Miss Heidi Haynes? Um, it, it's the idea of two important things coming together and making something new from that. So it's kind of a confluence of our lives together as artists and as husband and wife and, yeah, some... Everything that goes along with that, yeah, which is a lot. <laughs> so I can't imagine trying to write music together like with your spouse. Like that seems like it'd be super fun, and but also like, oh my dear Lord, at times. <laughs> two for two so far, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> what else is it like? <laughs> so what is it like to write together? I think it's, it's really incredible and it's different. It's diverse. Uh, how it happens. Um, sometimes Heidi will write all the lyrics and it'll be done. And I put some music to it. And other times we just start with a line and pound it out for months and figure it out. It's just, it's different every time. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes we'll write a little chunk of something like a chorus that we really like and then we can't figure out how the rest of the song goes and so we just leave the it kids and are walk hungry. away for a while. <laughs> yeah. Even months, we've come back later and been like, oh, there was that chorus that we had one time. We should, you know, play with that or whatever. And then we do, and then the song comes out somehow. One of the things I love about both of you is the vulnerability with which you write and then share kind of right away. Like, especially in our community, it's, it's not uncommon for Stephen and Heidi to say on Sunday morning at church, hey, we wrote this this week, and we hope you like it, you know? And everyone's just like, yeah, but as an artist to do that, when you've just written it three days ago and it hasn't been scrubbed or what, you know, through, and then everyone loves it, of course, but that's a pretty vulnerable thing. And so um, how is it, and, and Heidi, even like you started to lead worship at church and, and play piano and lead, it, there's just been this journey of you continuing to do new, bold, risky things where like your husband has been doing it for, you know, 75 years and yeah. he's no pro. <laughs> Since he was two. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, but you, like, you keep stepping into this vulnerability. So what's that like? And does, how does vulnerability find its way into the music that you're writing for Confluence? I sent you all these questions before, so yeah, you should have, right. you should have <laughs> no. Um. It was supposed to be name, where do you live? Yeah. Favorite color. I said I'll probably ask you one question before you play. <laughs> um. Yeah, music has been a new journey for me, and I do, it is kind of scary, I would say, that it feels quite scary every time I step out and do something is sort of a new experience, whereas for Steve, he's been literally doing this for such a long time that it's, uh, he feels a lot more comfortable, I think, here than I do, but um, I just figure if you're going to, if you're going to do something, you might as well be honest about why you're doing it and what you're doing, otherwise... 
what's the point? So that's, I guess, where the influence comes into our lyrics. Like, I might as well say what I actually really want to say. Otherwise, why am I writing this song? Come on now, people. I like that. Anything to add, Steve? That's, that's pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah, I think, well, only that, that I'm grateful that we get to write that way. Um, because we do, we do want to make beautiful things that help. And I think the more real it is, the more it can help. Yeah. Um, would you play us a song or two? We'd love to. All right. Again, give it up. Tove Music. Uh, we like to sing together with other people. We're an inclusive band. We are open and affirming that all people should sing together. Can I get an amen? Okay. So try this with me. Uh, we'll all sing it first. Whoa, 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 oh, oh, whoa, whoa. The flowers fade, the mountains crumble, the clouds can't hold the rain from the rumble. Oh, your love remains, and my life begins as sure as it ends. There is no bargaining, there's no pretending, no. Your love remains and Your love is strong It has never failed If only we could remember And your justice is mercy And it makes me new If only we could remember
we just hit a new marker for how much fun we can have <laughs> in a single room with all these people. So our band's name is Tove, and Tove is this ancient um, truth. It's cosmic. Tove specifically is a Hebrew word. And tonight, I want to talk about two different ways Tov works, just to kind of demonstrate what we're about. There's an external way of Tov that you can look at an oak tree, and a big, mighty, grown-up oak tree that drops its acorns on the ground. And in that one acorn is the potential for another mighty oak tree. And when that oak tree grows and then drops more acorns, that's Tov. One tree giving life to other trees that then choose to give life to other trees. Animals do it. Making animals in their own kind. Humans do it. We have tov. We have three toves. That's fun, isn't it? Animals or humans? Humans. Or, wait, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they're more like animals. No. Most everybody here knows our kids. That's good for us. <laughs> Uh, okay, and then there's an internal tove, and the internal tove is when there's a seed planted inside of us. We're all creative, and when that seed inside of us comes out and gives life to someone else, who in turn gives life to someone else, you get, that's tove, and that's what we want to have those kind of conversations, and I just want to say thanks again to Steve for having us here. Here's why. About a year and a half ago, I was telling everybody, we're all creative. I swear. <laughs> Let me prove it to you, and one day Steve sat down and, uh, do you remember? He goes, Steve, if you want anybody to believe you, you're going to have to make something yourself. So go make something yourself. And so that's when I came home to hide and said, you want to be in a band together? <laughs> but in order to believe it in Tove, one of the most important things you also have to believe in is a second chance. Because I think we've all been in places in our life where we've become hopeless about something. And really, that's a dead end. There's, 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 there's no way out of hopelessness. Something else has to come in and grow us back to life. And so if we believe in Tove, then we also believe in second chances. This is second attempt.
show me the light or can't you find it does the sun ever rise in hell show me the light or the voice that calls it hell is all of heaven waiting to be forgiven this is my second attempt at a sin it's not the first time i've tried to cross here the demons are real at least the struggle is and all i can hear is the anger pounding in my ear We're going to hear a couple more songs at the end from Stephen Heidi from Tobe Music, but uh, if you want to get in touch with them and find out when the record's coming out and find out how to buy it, uh, Tove Music, is it .com, Matt? Tovemusic.org. Uh, and you can sign up. Can you sign up tonight for the email list? Is there a place back in the... Okay. And you can get one of those super, super sexy Tove t-shirts. I wore mine yesterday, and then I realized, dang it, I wish I would have worn it tonight. But I had some things I wanted to look good for yesterday, so I, so I wore it then. Um, hey, I haven't introduced Aaron Ankrum back there. Who, Aaron, can you give us a, give us a shout? Aaron's in a little band called Gray Shot that is just doing such good, good music and such good things. And Aaron is producing uh, Tove's record. So... Uh, I can't wait to, I can't wait to hear it. I've heard a couple of scratch tracks and they are beautiful. So, all right, Sean, get up here. Where are you, Sean? Sean Smucker, ladies and gentlemen. So I first heard of you, Sean, uh, from my friend Matt Bays. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and two years ago, he was at the Festival of Faith and Writing and he texted me and he said, oh my gosh, I got to have lunch with Sean Smucker. <laughs> and I was like, that is so awesome. Who is and who Sean is Sean Smucker? Smucker. <laughs> um, but I love Matt, and he's a great author. And so he's like, you know, he look, like, I, you can't look at someone through text, but you kind of can. Do you know what I mean? It was like this. So... 
I got in touch with the day the angels fell, and it's really, it is a midrash, which is an imaginative exploration, a what if uh, of what could have happened after uh, the end of the story of the Garden of Eden. So, Sean, could you tell me how, like, in the creative in your creative process, how did you, how did that idea come to you? How did that, and how did you start playing around with that? Yeah, so I co-write and ghostwrite books for a living, and one of the clients that I worked with was in Istanbul, Turkey. And so I went over to work with him for about three weeks to help him write his life story. He was 49 years old and he was dying of cancer, stage four liver and colon cancer. And so he, they didn't think that he had very much longer to live. It was one of the toughest things I've ever done, the hardest projects I've worked on. And when I came back from that, it was a really lonely experience because I was working with him for a couple of hours and then I'd go back to an apartment and just write and record, uh, transcribe the recordings. And I was basically working by myself in a city where no one speaks English. I would take a taxi cab like an hour across the city every day and I couldn't communicate with the cab driver. A lot of times they didn't really know exactly where we were going. So it was a really lonely experience. But the thing I took away from it when I came back, well, two things I took away was and this may seem kind of obvious, but I realized I am gonna die. And I had never really confronted that thought before. I will die. And it was really overwhelming to suddenly have this, I mean, I've got, you know, we had four kids at the time, and I thought, wow, this guy's 49, like I'm, that's 19 years from now. And that's not even that long, 12 years, I think it was 37, so 12 years. So that was a huge thing that I came back with, but working with him also raised this other question. And the question was, could it be possible that death is a gift? And so I was really wrestling with these two ideas. And, and that question really came out of sitting with him and hearing him over and over again say, but unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But when it dies, there's a harvest 10, 20, 100 times. And so I'm just wrestling with these two concepts. I'm going to die. Uh, I don't want to die. Could it be possible that death is a gift? And so all that came together in this book, uh, which really was, was, it grew up out of a question I had as a kid of wondering what happened after the fall. You know, we're left with this image of the two cherubim guarding the entrance to the tree of life. There's a flaming sword. It's all really bizarre and strange. And then you never hear about it again. And so I created um, sort of a follow-on mythical story uh, going forward from that point. Would you read some of that beautiful mythical story love, uh, to us? I would could, love to. Could we, could we ask him to read? Okay. Yeah. So... <laughs> So this story, in the beginning, it starts, Samuel is an old man, and he's retelling this story that happened when he was a child. His mother was killed in an accident, and a strange, strange people start showing up in the small uh, sort of rural area where he lives. And one man in particular comes into the house, and 
says, hey, would, would you like to hear a story? They're sitting around the table. It's his dad and a few other people. And so he retells the story of the fall. And he says, that's the part of the story that you heard. You all know that. But here's the part of the story that you didn't hear. The two, the two cherubim remained there guarding the entrance to the forest, guarding the tree of life. Decades passed, centuries. Eventually, one of the cherubim allowed his mind to wander. He thought about how humans had spread throughout the earth and how they lived a hard existence. More than anything else, the humans feared death. They didn't remember where death would lead them, so they didn't realize it was a gift and not something to be feared. This cherub realized that if he could possess the tree of life, humans would worship him. They would do whatever he wanted them to do. But even more important to that cherub was the knowledge that if humans ate of the tree of life, they could never escape earth, and they would be forced to live in his kingdom forever. He knew that humans are often weak, and they would do anything to avoid death, something they knew so little of, and trade it for the endless stay on earth that the tree of life would give them. They could not possibly imagine the hard existence that awaited them without death. That cherub's own inner eyes began to envision the throne upon which he would sit, the scepter with which he would rule, and lust for power grew in his heart. More than anything, he began to desire the tree of life so that he could give its fruit to humans and make them his servants forever with no escape. One day, he moved toward the tree to steal a piece of its fruit. He planned to run away with it, plant it, and nurture it. For many different reasons, he could not possess the tree itself, but with a piece of its fruit, he hoped to fashion a tree of his own, a powerful tree. He could have his own tree of life. The voice could never destroy him, and people desiring the tree and its fruit would worship him and do whatever he told them to do. Once they ate from the tree, they would be trapped on earth. But the second cherub saw him move for the tree and tried to stop him, and the two of them fought. For 40 days and 40 nights, they wrestled in the forest. Both of them grew weary, yet neither would give up. As they fought, their fury turned to fire, and as they rolled through the forest, the trees caught and burned. Finally, their battle took them to the center of the forest where the darkness had deceived the first two people long, long before. The tree from which the first two people had eaten, the tree that had opened their inner eyes, had become small and twisted, like an old cedar that cannot reach the sun. The fire from the fight lit this old tree, and it went up in hot smoke. But the tree of life had grown tall. Its leaves were broad and green, and its branches reached up nearly to heaven. Its fruit, untouched for thousands of years, hung heavy and ripe. When the fury of the cherubim lit the tree of life, it burned for another 40 days and 40 nights. Humans gathered in the surrounding mountains and plains and watched with terror, because at night the burning tree looked like a comet ready to collide with the earth. And during the day, it looked like the beginning of an eclipse that might drown the sun forever. When the cherubim realized what had happened, they stopped fighting and sat quietly beside one another, spent and waiting. And the voice came down to them. To the first cherub, the voice said, you have desired the tree of life more than anything else, and so you're cursed. For eternity, you will try to find the tree. Your only desire shall be to possess it, and your fate will be tied to it. With that, the first cherub vanished and began to roam the earth, always searching for the tree of life, because it is always reborn after it is destroyed. 
In the peace that remained in that smoldering garden forest, the voice said to the second cherub, you have done well, good and faithful servant. Will you take on this purpose? Will you also roam the earth, but to keep the other cherub from possessing the tree, the tree of life, because of its nature can never be completely destroyed. And even now it is being remade and will reappear where someone who is faithful gives up their life for a friend. But when it is reborn, you must destroy it so that humankind does not lose the gift of death. The second cherub nodded, took flight, and roamed the earth, always looking for the tree of life in order to destroy it, to keep the first cherub from possessing it and preserve the gift of death for humanity. This cherub, legend says, has destroyed the tree many times, maybe a hundred, maybe a thousand, but the tree of life must be destroyed many more times before the end. So when that story is told, uh, what Samuel doesn't know is that the person telling him the story is one of the angels, and another person around the table listening with him is, one, is the other angel. And so Samuel wants to possess the tree because he thinks he might be able to bring his mom back um, from, from, from death if, if he can find it. So that's, that's kind of the center point when everything starts to happen. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> and Samuel and his friend Abra uh, go on this journey, and they have to figure out, they have to kind of figure out the story and who are these men and what are they, and it's so good. Oh, I loved it. Um, so, Sean, we're going to bring you back and have you read, um, after the intermission, I think you're going to read another piece from the, the follow-up, right? The Edge of Over There, which just came out, uh, which is so, so good, too. So thank you, Sean Smucka. All right, and let's make sure to be kind to all the people listening out there, you know, because they are listening out there. Not right now, because this is not an actual live podcast being broadcast. That's, we don't have that capability. We don't have a satellite. This doesn't, that, that, you know, but it's going to come out later, and let's be kind to them. Um, so Exodus, the book of Exodus in your Hebrew Bible, everybody tracking so far? Most people believe that the book of Genesis is kind of like the prequel. It's the setup story. But the real story starts in the book of Exodus. Cinda Schrader? No. Oh, my gosh, you look so much like my friend Cinda, but you're not. Sorry, ADD meds. I didn't take it. Um, wow. <laughs> so the book of Exodus, <laughs> remember in the Hebrew Bible? starts with what declaration about God? That is an all-play question to which you are invited to participate. The book of Exodus, start, Exodus starts with something that God responds to. God hears their cry. Thank you, Sally. And? God hears whose cry? The afflicted. Who is afflicted? God's people are being afflicted. How are they being afflicted? 
they've been enslaved for 400 years. What happens to a group of people whose identity is slavery? Oh, is that Alicia back there? They've lost their ability to dream. It's interesting, the United States has been around for how long? 250, 275, something like that. 400 years is longer than that. So that just put that in perspective. And um, so God hears the cry of God's people, and God comes down and does something about it. And then we meet this character named Moses, who's a murderer and a prince, and then a shepherd, and then a nobody, and a person who has to learn a whole lot about emptiness for a whole long time. And then he encounters this burning bush, and uh, he somehow figures out in the thin space that gets revealed that God is in the burning bush somehow in some way. And Moses has the audacity to ask God's name. Now, uh, God says, uh, most of our translations say, I am that I am, but it's really translated, it should be translated, I will be what I will be. Essentially, God is saying, of all, the, of all the ways God could have answered Moses in that moment, I am the God who hears the people who are afflicted. I am the God who comes down. I am the God who rescues. I'm the God who always has been and always will be. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the Tower of Strong Rescue. I mean, there, there's so many ways in which God could have answered, and they all would have been right. But instead, God says, I will be what I will be. What is God trying to communicate to this man? in the midst of 400 years of slavery. I'm always in the beingness. I like that word, beingness. Even in the midst of slavery. And we don't know really how Moses internalizes that, but um, I like the phrase, the quote that Richard Rohr has when he says, Mystery is not unknowable, it's endlessly knowable. And so sin number one is saying, I have created a systematic theology in which I can explain God to you. That's sin number one. Let's not do that. Um, Every description of God that we read in scriptures, mother hen, strong tower, uh, when Jesus is bread of life, is a metaphor, it's a picture, it's, it's getting kind of close, but it's really nowhere near. The God that responds to Moses and says, I will be what I will be, is both endlessly knowable and completely... <laughs> unknowable. And the great sin of our time, according uh, to my humble opinion, (laughs) (laughs) is that we have said we can paint a perfect picture of God. 
uh, in 70 AD, uh, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And before that, in the time of Jesus, Judaism was very diverse. There was Sadducees that uh, kind of ran the temple, and they were collaborating with Rome, and so they got paid a lot, of ma- a lot of money, and they still taught the principles of Judaism, but they thought the only way to make it was to collaborate. There was Pharisees who didn't collaborate, and what they did is they, they tried to keep people on track, learning Torah, and uh, they, were, they were very zealous for that. There were zealots who wanted to dethrone Rome by violence, and there was Essenes who uh, created little communes outside of the middle of nowhere and said, we're going to survive just by being completely apart. But after the temple was destroyed, the Sadducees were no longer needed because there was no temple system to, um, to keep up. The Zealots were thrown down violently. The Essenes were still out there doing nothing, so only the Pharisees were left. And if you think about it, the temple was the way that we worshiped God. That was the way. That was the people made pilgrimages, every major feast. They came to Jerusalem. It was all about the temple. The temple is where they collected taxes. The temple was the center structure of where the life of God uh, existed and where we worshiped God. And without it, the Pharisees had to figure out a way to preserve Judaism. And um, without, um, without them and their brilliant, beautiful, creative thinking, uh, it's very likely Judaism would have been uh, no more. That would have been the last generation. So they created a system of thinking and writing called Midrash. And does anyone know what Midrash means? Just the word Midrash. It's Hebrew word Darash. What does it mean? Anyone? Telling. Yes. Telling and searching to go on a journey of inquiry. And so what they did is they created a way of learning the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, in which these ancient stories could be retold in ways that would make sense of the devastation of their time. So an example of Midrash would be Cain and Abel. You know the story of Cain and Abel, the first brothers? Uh, We got out of the gate, and humanity was just doing amazing. There was a murder. One brother murdered another brother. And the story goes that they came to give God sacrifices, and Abel gave God his first fruits. Cain gave God a sacrifice, and um, God came to Cain and said, I don't like your sacrifice. So here's the question. Why did God not accept Cain's sacrifice? Just throw it out there. We're going to get there. Just, you know, don't don't think too hard. It wasn't really a sacrifice. Say more. (laughs) Now we're in church. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah, it wasn't really a sacrifice. Anyone have any more to add to that? Totally. Wasn't the best of what he had to offer. Abel, first fruits, Cain, and offering over here. Wasn't the first. Yep. Yep. Anyone else? Anything else to add? There was a heart issue with his offering. Yep. Anyone else? Mike? There was no death. Yeah. Um, wow, I never thought about that. Man, I want to, 
I want to think about that some more, Micah Murray. Um, anyone else? Anything else to add? Who said that? Kara? Yeah, the Bible doesn't say why God didn't. Now, we have taught why God didn't accept, and that's all good. It's all, you know, it's like, yep, that's what preachers do. Uh, we make stuff up. And, um, <laughs> But when a question is not really answered in the Bible, that is where Midrash starts. So this woman named Sandy Sasso, she's a Jewish rabbi, retired now, but her Midrash on Cain and Abel is this. Cain was treated unfairly. And the question that Cain and Abel wants us to ask is what do we do when we're treated unfairly? even by God. Now you might say, whoa, the God I believe in treats everybody fairly. To which I would say, awesome. Let's talk about the Holocaust. Let's talk about any number of things, all right? Now, I'm not saying God's not good. I'm not saying, but, but I'm saying these are the questions you have to wrestle with. And you, in my opinion, you can't just say, well, God knows best. Actually, the Bible wants us to ask that question. Why does God apparently treat Cain so horribly? Instead of being like, the, that's out of bounds, the rabbis believe, and I believe, that the Bible is full of those exact kind of mysteries so that we ask that exact question. Like, why in the world is the first set of siblings torn apart by murder, and then instead of comforting both of them, we see a rejection. What do you do when you are treated unfairly? What controls you? Now, that's a good question, right? I mean, that's an... Now, some of you are like, I don't want to... I don't like that question. Um... But that's a beautiful question. So Midrash, really quickly, is based on four layers of inquiry. The first, when you get to a passage, it's called the Peshat layer. It means the simple meaning. Um, and you can't contradict the simple meaning. You can't say, you know, Abel, Cain and Abel weren't really brothers. They were enemies. And they were from two different tribes. And so that's why they murdered each other. No. They were actually brothers, and you have to hold with that simple meaning. The next layer is called remez, and it means hint. And so the way the Bible was written is there's, there's these little codes and hints, Hebrew words. When you see one word, it's wanting you to go and find where that word is used elsewhere in order to, like in uh, one of the plagues, the plague of darkness, right? So we're in Exodus, the plagues are coming, there's darkness in the camp. A brother can't see a brother. Um, but there's light in the Israelites' camp. Now, the word light has only been used one other time in the Hebrew Scriptures before Exodus 14, I think it is. And um, anyone know when else it's used? Let there be light. Genesis 1. Zebra word or. O-R, 
So the writer is trying to say in that ninth plague that a new creation is about to burst forth. This is what's happening. Now, you and I, Western minds, we go, well, uh, there was no light in the Egyptians' camp, but there was light in Egypt's camp, and that light was uh, the kind of light that only God can provide, and only Christians can see it, even though there was no Christians back then, but it's, it just makes sense because that's how it was. Um, <laughs> I know I really believe the Israelites could see each other and the, and the Egyptians couldn't, and it just makes sense. Um, in, instead of like, oh, light, let there be light. Oh, oh, they're about to leave Egypt and start a community of people that are, are formed in the image of God. And that's going to be a whole new, beautiful, bright, amazing, crazy, ridiculous beginning. Um, that starts with worshiping a golden calf and, <laughs> and then Moses murdering a bunch of people. So, um, and even that, you have to say, okay, what does it mean that in the very beginning of <laughs> the people of God, a bunch of them are slaughtered? You can't ignore that question. You can't explain it away. You can't say, well, the Bible didn't, doesn't really say that God didn't order the slaughter of um, a village of people, men, women, and children. Um, Midrash has you dive right into that and, and get deeper and deeper. So the next, so we have Peshat, Remez, and then Darash, which means seek. And that's when, if you're faithful with Peshat and faithful with Remez, then you can really start imagining like Sean does. What if, in fact, there's a, there's a midrash about the garden. Because the question is, why, why was there a freaking tree that you shouldn't eat of in the first place, right? I mean, that's so dumb. That's, that's just, it's not even dumb, it's cruel. It's cruel. Why would that be? Well, it just is. You see, God's ways are not our ways. Um. <laughs> so there's a midrash that says, and again, a midrash is, is a wondering. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's an imaginative story that at first, the, the garden doesn't have the tree. And for the first several iterations of it, the Adam and the Eve never mature because they're not faced with a choice. So they remain children their whole lives. And then they start over. And then God says, okay, well, that was, you know, scrap that one. Let's try again. You know, take two. Again, this is, this is an imagination. Like, this isn't right or wrong. This is just, this is, this is the way that rabbis helped understand. Um, and so there is this tree um, metaphor. Sure. Um, Adam and Eve, real people that absolutely existed and we could find their bones. I tell people, if you could prove to me that Adam and Eve were actual real human beings, then that wouldn't make me stop believing the Bible. <laughs> okay. That's fine. Maybe they were real. Maybe that's a beautiful story that tells us 
um, how to really ask the really good, juicy, beautiful questions about the God that is always coming to rescue us out of our slavery. So I don't want to, you know, get like if like if you want to argue with me about Adam and Eve, and uh, I'm like, yeah, yep, they existed for real. I mean, that's what I'll say back to you. Like if you say they have to, I'll say, yep, they absolutely have to. Yep, totally. Because I'm not interested in that argument. What I am interested is in finding um, the deeper, hidden, and beautiful meanings of what God is trying to do through this beautiful. library of books called the Bible, in which contradictions exist, errors are there, but isn't it a much bigger, more beautiful um, picture of who God is if God can play with us in all of those contradictions and errors, and, and if God can still be this big, beautiful, magnificent reconciler of all things. I don't need a perfect book to believe that God is real. That goes back to the, the, the sin of, well, we got to get a systematic theology that perfectly describes who God is. I think that's idolatry. I believe in the Bible because even in the middle of incomprehensible violence and errors and contradictions, there is an overarching story of uh, a God that is reconciling all things. And it says somehow in some crazy mystery in Christ. And the Christ, the Logos, the spirit that was hovering over the waters in the beginning spirit that inhabited Jesus of Nazareth. Somehow, in some beautiful way, this Christ has the power is the wrong word, has the beauty, the creativity, the expansiveness to contain all of us in himself and then create something new out of all of us. And... um, so the fourth layer of Midrash is Sod or Sud, S-O-D, and that's the hidden or the mystery. And that's that moment that you go, <gasps> and the coin drops in the slot, and it doesn't totally, you can't really explain it, and you try to explain it to your, to your spouse or your roommate, and you're like, ah, I'm not fine, I, 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 I. Um, but I know something that I didn't know before. And so the rabbis would play with these four layers and they would try to make sense of the devastation of their times. And they would believe that scriptures can mean more than one thing because they're anchored in this reality that God is love and God is good and God is moving us towards something good and beautiful. And um, the arc of the whole story is going towards grace and reconciliation and inclusion. Amen? That, that is where the truth is headed. The truth is going somewhere. You don't stand in the truth. You chase the truth. You follow the truth where it goes. Um, and you don't totally get it. 
So if divine revelation is an ongoing conversation, what questions do you have? We're not going to answer them tonight, but I want you to name them. And I want you to name that question that you're kind of afraid to name. If divine revelation is an ongoing conversation, what questions might you have the courage to just name out loud tonight? Yes. 2.0 for the love. Why hasn't there been a tangible update in the last 2,000 years? Thanks, Micah. I lost that last sentence. Yeah. Yeah, there's this. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. The presence of evil in the world, what is it doing? What is it there for? What's the purpose of it? Yeah. I think that's a beautiful question. Yeah, if some stories are true and others aren't, how do you know? Sandy Sasso says there are true stories and there are truth stories. Sorry, I just tried to answer that and I shouldn't have, but that was too good to pass up. I get it. No, I get it. You know, I think that that comes to, yeah. What else? Whoa, what is your name, sir? Roger. Uh, Roger and I are Twitter, Twitter buddies. We, yeah, we will talk later. Uh, what are my unquestioned answers? Is that what you said and why? Whew. Yeah, that's a good one. What else? It being the Bible? That dang Bible. Why is there even a Bible in the first place? <laughs> Charlie said, why is it open to so many interpretations, right? Such a great question. What if there's only one? Keep going. It's really good to name the questions. Whoa. Does truth have an expiration date? <laughs> Anyone nervous right now? It's okay to be nervous. It's even okay to be like, whoa, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> My friend invited me, and I paid $10 for this. 
Um, that's totally okay. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Oh, snap. What must we do so that we are ready for a new installment? That's the kind of question you, you're always asking. Steve Haynes over here, to which I go, ask easier questions. No, that's great. Yeah, Karen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, where's the truth outside of Christianity in other religions and other people? And if it's true, then who does it belong to? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Kurt? Kirby, what perspective are we missing that if we could see it? Right. You know what? I think that person is 65 years old, sitting down in Arkansas, making collard greens, sitting in her kitchen, and she knows everything. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. And she's up there eating the collard greens, God. <laughs> no, I, I love it, Kirby. Like, what, like, wh whose perspective can we listen to that might really open up our eyes that we just haven't, haven't heard yet? And how can we make room for that voice? You know? I love it. Bam. What if revelation, the end times, the thing is happening? We don't even see it. Yeah, what, what construct are we living in? And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will be what I will be. God transcends time, past, present, future. There is a little saying that I've heard um, about the Bible, actually, that it really happened. And again, let's not argue over it. It is happening, and it will happen, right? But how do we inhabit that? That's what you're asking. How do we inhabit God, I think you said. Did you say embody or inhabit? Come on, people. We could change some things in this room if we keep asking these kinds of questions. Um, don't be too quick to answer them. Pick a question that shimmered for you and sit with it. Rainer Maria Rilke has that great quote about letting the questions lead you on journeys. And don't be too quick to answer them because you might not be ready to hear the answer. But at the right time, 
it'll, it'll emerge for you. Deep breath in. Breathe out. Uh, we're going to take a little intermission, about 15 minutes. These doors are going to open up. A bounty of food is going to suddenly appear like the Gryffindor table. Uh, and then at about 8.33, we will resume our evening. Sound good? Okay, uh, as you're finding your seats, uh, Alicia, can you wave your hand or put up your glass of wine or whatever? Uh, Alicia is selling books back there. My two books are available. Uh, and Sean's two books are available. And Tove t-shirts are available. So um, here's the deal. Artists that sell books and sell music we make no money. So even if you already have one of these books, buy one for a friend. I'm unapologetic about that now. Um, if you're going to buy one of Sean's, buy one of mine for the love. No. Um, actually, no, not no. Yes, if you're going to buy one of Sean's, buy one of mine. Kidding. Okay, uh, Sean, I'm going to invite you back up, if you would, wherever you are. There you are. Okay, Sean, is this about what you expected would happen tonight? Is this oh, yeah. roughly what, yep. what you would... This is it. Yeah? We're at, we all still have our salvation and everything? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Um, Can I are, say something first? Yeah. Who here goes to Steve's church? I'm just curious. Yeah. So I told Miley not too long ago that if I was going to move... Do you remember when I said this? If I was going to move anywhere in the country to go to somebody's church, it would either be Brian Zahn, because Brian Zahn, or it would be Steve Weens. So I hope you Prove guys, it. I hope you guys, <laughs> I just hope you guys understand what a treasure that you have here in Minnesota with, with Steve. Mm. I mean, Sean, thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. that. All right, Sean, I read The Day the Angels Fell, and then I gave it to Mary, and we both freaked out. And then somehow we gave it to Rick and Becky, right? And they freaked out. And then we found out that there was another book coming. And we, you know, what, Abra, Samuel, we need to know what happened next. The, the, the flaming sword, the journal, the, oh, my Lord, tell me, please. So uh, when did you know that this was going to be two or maybe even three books? I always thought it would probably be three books, but I didn't really know what the series was going to be about overall until I got to the end of the first book and realized, you know, that the role that Abra is going to take on and that sort of thing. So, yeah. mm -hmm. Okay, so um, without giving anything away or in much away from how The Day the Angels Fell ends... Bring us into the edge of over there and like set that up for us mm -hmm. uh, uh, again. Like, how, how do you do this with a with a yeah. fiction book? I mean, I'm always like, 
I mean, I know how to talk about my nonfiction drivel, but mm -hmm. um, <laughs> fiction is different. So bring us into the edge of over there. So the, the idea for the edge of over there really came from, uh, and I, I'm a little bit obsessed with death. Um, I think in a healthy way. Miley. <laughs> I just have so many questions. And so when it comes to death, you know, wrestling with this thing, is it a gift? Is it a curse? Because it's talked about so many different ways in scripture. Um, and then when my grandmother passed away, we had this really beautiful scene of the days leading up to that, of us being with her at my aunt's house. My whole family was there. She had eight kids, and there were like 30 grandkids and all these great grandkids running around. And we would just sing songs. She just wanted to sing, you know? So when she would kind of wake up, she would whisper to one of her kids, hey, could you guys sing the, you know, such and such a song? And the thing that really struck me was that so many of those old hymns talk about over there. Um, and so that was where the edge of over there came from. Um, and then there's also this legend that I read that there are seven sort of portals on earth where the souls of the departed go into the afterlife. And each continent has its own portal. And it's a really interesting legend. The, the North American portal is at the grave site of Marie Laveau in, some, in uh, St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 in New Orleans. And so that sort of came into my mind, and I was thinking, oh, that's really interesting. And so this book takes place in a sort of in-between place, between Earth and over there. And uh, I'm going to read a section... There's a character named Leo. I love Leo. He's my favorite character. And his sister is sick. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. That's not my favorite character. <laughs> you have to make up your mind. The tattoo guy is my favorite character. What's his name? Oh, again? yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, Mr. Henry. But that's not yeah. where you're going, so go ahead. Uh, so, should I read something else? No. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> You need to know, right. at this stage in the night, my ADD medication is completely worn off. Awesome. And so we need to keep you here for a little while longer. Okay, I'll read a lot. Um, so Leo is, his, his younger sister is sick. And if the main question in the first book is, could it be possible that death is a gift? The main question in the second book really centers around what we're willing to do to help those who we love, and when do we go too far in doing that? And so Leo's dad has found out about a place where he can take Leo's sister where she can be made well. But if they go there, he's told that they can never come back. So Leo overhears this conversation, and then he follows his father to try and see where he's going to take um, his sister. And it turns out that, well, let me read this. So Leo held the gate as he walked through, making sure it didn't close behind him because any 10-year-old boy knows the last thing you want when entering a cemetery is for the gate to close behind you. It's bad luck, and who wants to spend the night sleeping on the ground when there are bodies hidden all around? Who knows what time the groundskeeper might arrive in the morning? Besides, it would be scary enough if you got locked into a normal graveyard, and this was no normal graveyard. This was St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. 
St. Louis Cemetery Number 1 was an above-ground cemetery. All the graves, instead of being below the earth, were crypts built like miniature houses. Some were plain, rectangular boxes, while others had peaked roofs and elaborate doors. Some were behind tall iron gates, while others were right there where you could touch them, lined up one after another, so close you could barely walk between them. Most were white, but some were crumbling brick or smooth stucco painted a bright color, like peach or pink or lime green. The rows between the crypts were long and straight. Leo had lost sight of his father, so he headed into the cemetery, staying close to the wall, ducking behind the larger crypts, hiding in their shadows. Night had arrived. There were no lights in the cemetery, but light from the street and neighboring houses crept in over the tall wall, casting angular shadows in different directions. Leo realized that even though he normally felt like he was losing his belief, at night his belief was still very much intact. The shadows seemed to be living things, and while he was scared, he was also excited because his belief was right there where he could see it. Perhaps this is why so many people like to watch scary movies. It reminds them of what it feels like to believe in something they cannot see. The moon was up high over the city. He held the lockpicks tight in his pocket so they wouldn't bump against each other while he walked. There was a dim flickering of light up ahead close to an intersection of two of the main walkways. He leaned in against a tall crypt. It was the color of moonlight and massive, probably 10 feet long. Small tufts of grass grew out of the cracks in its roof. He peered around the front. People had left small glass vases of flowers and notes. There was rotting fruit. The crypt was covered in handwriting. His father came walking down the opposite aisle, and Leo flattened himself in the shadow along the grave, holding his breath. His father still carried Ruby, his sister, like a baby in front of him, and he looked exhausted from lugging her so far. Her breathing was hoarse and labored, and one of her arms hung limp at her side like a pendulum in a clock that no longer works. The bag hung heavy from one of Amos's hands. Excuse me, Amos said as he turned in between two of the crypts, and at first Leo thought his father was talking to him. He tensed up, preparing to run or to fight. He wondered how fast he could move while carrying his sister, but then his father kept talking and he realized there was someone else. Are you Marie? I am, a woman replied. And in those two words, her voice was magical, soft as silk. It moved like melted chocolate. I need to leave, Amos said, and Leo thought he could hear tears in his father's voice. But there was also something mechanical there, and Leo realized his father must be repeating the lines the doctor had given him. Can I use the key? I heard you were coming, she said slowly. That's why I waited. But the night came first. I thought perhaps you had changed your mind. No, no, he said, and his voice held a lining of fear, the thinnest thread. I'm going. I'm ready to go. Leo peeked around the corner of the crypt. His father's back faced him. On the other side of his father was a tiny fire, almost comical in its smallness, yet producing a surprising amount of light. But Leo wasn't looking for his father or even his sister anymore. He was trying to see where the beautiful voice came from. At first, he saw nothing but shadows, nothing but flickering light against the chalky white of surrounding graves that rose high into the night sky, higher than he remembered. It was like he had shrunk down to the size of a mouse. Marie stepped forward into the orange light from the fire. She was a large woman, made taller by a scarf wrapped around her head. It rose in an unruly white bunch and had red stripes running through it, some thick, some thin, like a cobweb that's been brushed aside. Her ponderous but elegant body was draped in a patterned red robe, light and silky. It rustled in the breeze, or maybe it was the small fire that made it move. Beneath everything, she wore black clothes that blended in with the shadows around her. So at times, her body looked like nothing more than a red robe floating in the movement of the flames. But her face, 
Oh, her face. She was beautiful. Her skin was the color of caramel toffee. Small bits of jet black hair snuck out from under her headscarf and curled in wiry wisps near her round brown eyes. Her nose and mouth were soft and full. Marie sighed, and Leo felt the breathlessness that comes when a boy first recognizes beauty in a woman. He felt bashful and curious and couldn't stop staring. You cannot take the little one, and you cannot take the bag, she said with regret in her voice. She talked to Amos the same way most adults talk to children who say they want to go to the moon. It's no place for a little one. Perhaps someday, but not yet. Amos shook his head slowly at first and then vigorously. She's very, very ill, and this is what I need to make her better. She won't survive much longer. I have to take her. The doctor said Amos fumbled in his pocket as best he could while holding his daughter. He pulled out a thick mound of bills, holding them tight in his fist. A few of them drifted to the ground. I brought double, he said, his whining voice rising higher until he was nearly shouting in desperation. I brought double. I can pay for both of us. Marie stretched out her hand, but Leo couldn't tell if she was reaching out to touch Ruby or to take the money or to reject both. Before she did anything, she pulled back. Who told you to find me? It was the doctor, my friend. Her name is Marie interrupted him suddenly, loudly. Stop. Do not say that name here. She's a friend to no one. And if she's helping you, the only thing she is truly doing is helping herself. She helped me once long ago. Helped. Each time she said the word helped, it came out like a curse word. The two stood there, the tiny fire between them. Finally, she said quietly, sighing, I cannot allow you to take the little one. You can go if you'd like, but alone. I'll take the child wherever you'd like me to take her. I will leave her wherever you ask me to leave her. She stared at Amos, and in her eyes there was a strange sort of power. She looked at Ruby as if she already owned her, as if she was her child for the taking. But there was kindness there, too, mixed in with it all, and Leo didn't know what to think of this strange woman named Marie. There's no point in me going in there without her, Amos said in a slow voice, emphasizing each word. She's dying. Her only hope is over there. I can't leave her. Very well, Marie said, stepping forward, lifting her robe and stretching one of her bare feet above the fire as if to snuff it out. Wait, Amos shouted, and the whole earth stopped, or seemed to. Wait, weren't you ever a mother? Didn't you ever hold your own child? Marie stared at him. Didn't you ever wait with them while they were sick? God forbid you ever had to watch them die. Marie didn't move. I have nothing to wait for, Amos said, and his voice was quieter now. She'll be gone soon. So, really, you're only letting me go in, because look at her. She won't be alive much longer. Leo heard a car drive by on the street outside the tall wall. He could see a few dim stars in the night sky. Most were drowned out by the city's glow. Another car drove by, its headlights moving the shadows, forcing them to drift one way, then the other, like ocean waves. After the car moved into the distance, the shadows seemed more eager, stronger, and they reached for the flames. Enough, Marie shouted, and Amos jumped back a step. Leo felt his heart thud inside his chest. You must listen very closely, Marie said, while throwing a few small sticks onto the dying fire. She spoke faster, the words blurring together like watercolor. Her accent became stronger, and her tease sounded like a snare drum. The passageway has become treacherous in recent years. Your doctor friend has been sending more and more people in through this gate, but you will find all you need for you and for your little one. Where are we going? Amos asked with urgency. Where are you taking us? Marie sighed, started talking a few times, but each attempt trailed off. Leo could tell she was having trouble knowing where to begin. I'm not taking you anywhere, she said. I'm simply unlocking the door and pointing you in the right direction, pointing you to the edge. She withdrew a large key and walked to the crypt. Leo was hiding behind it. The key was white as a bone, the size of her forearm. She held it by the head. 
The shoulders of the key were harsh squares. The shaft was long and straight, and there were teeth at the very end, five or six of them, like the skyline of a shadow city. There was a loud creaking, the sound of rock crashing onto rock, and Leo was certain that a neighboring crypt must have fallen over. Then he heard again, no, he felt, the grating sound of the key, deep and harsh, somewhere in the bowels of the earth. Be careful, Marie said, take care of the child. What had happened? Leo felt suddenly awake as if a skin of numbness had fallen from him. He took a deep breath and it was like a first breath. He could smell the summer, the approaching rain, the city. Life swirled around him, even in St. Louis Cemetery Number 1. Why had he waited there so long beside the crypt? Why hadn't he raced in and grabbed his sister? Why hadn't he fought for her? Why had he done nothing but stand by and watch? He glanced around the corner once more, and at that moment the fire went out in a rain of sparks like falling stars. Darkness roared in to fill up the space between the above-ground graves. No one was there. Come on now. <clears throat> Did you notice the interplay of light and dark? Did you notice the interplay of life and death? Did you notice the gorgeous writing? Her tease sounded like a snare drum. You know, it's funny. I didn't even know, I didn't even realize this till now, but the, one of the first things that Marie says, I am. <laughs> Come on now. I never even realized it. It's really funny. Thresholds, someone that will help you through a threshold. I mean, there's so many themes in this, uh, in this book, Sean, that make me feel so alive with wonder and um, imagination and creativity. And it just invites me right into the big story. I love it. I love it. So, uh, okay, I'm saying this for you. I'm saying this also for the, um, the people that are listening who I kind of have forgotten about people. I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, but you've been here with us. Uh, you can get Sean's books anywhere you buy books. You can get it seansmucker.com. You can get them uh, on Amazon or Books A Million. Uh, they're published by Ravel in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, the title, the first one is called The Day the Angels Fell. The second one is called The Edge of Over There. I'll put the links to Sean's website and both of these books and um, uh, his Twitter handle uh, and Facebook so that you can get in touch with Sean. Uh, I'll put all those on the show notes of the podcast. So thank you, my friend. So good. So good. Uh, all right. We have time for the deliciousness that is Tove music. So would you come on up, Steve and Heidi, play a couple more tunes? Would you do that? And again, um, you can get in touch with Stephen Heidi at tovemusic.org. That's T-O-V music.org. You can sign up for their email. You can find out how to get their single that's being released uh, this next month, or this, this, this month. The record releases um, uh, later on in, in October. And so, what's that, Steve? Later on in October. Okay. Uh, so make sure to get in touch with them. So, Stephen, how do you take it away? Thanks, Steve. Uh, thanks for also holding the space that you held where, I mean, I don't know what other room I can bring every fear I have about God. And 
the, the, the man holding the room is just like, yep, come on. Uh, so thanks for your open spirit. Um, yeah, our album comes out end of October, and we're going to throw a big CD release party November 2nd. And uh, location TBD, but we hope you all come out for that. We're going to sing another song. The day the fire came. Yeah. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, so Steve and I write a lot of songs about just things that are going on in our life or things that we think about or wonder about or experience. And the day the fire came um, for us is this idea that like sometimes you're just doing your normal everyday thing. And the next day, your whole life can feel totally different, like something just came through and swept all of your normal constructs just right out the door. And you're kind of standing there wondering, what the heck do I do now? Where should, you know, like, where do I go from here? Um, and um, in, in wildfires, um, it kind of can wipe everything clean, you know, take out homes and it's kind of like wiping the slate clean, but so much new life can come to those spots that have been burned out by a fire. So much beauty can be found there. Um, we go camping with our kids and we've learned a lot about wildfires actually. And there are plants that can't even release their seeds until a wildfire comes and burns them. And then they drop their seeds into the earth and new plants can come up from that. And so, and there are flowers that only bloom after a wildfire has gone through an area, and they're stunning and beautiful. So uh, we wrote this song <laughs> called The Day the Fire Came. La, 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 la. La, 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 la. Forget themselves 
Honey, I really like singing with you. You're really pretty. Aw. Pretty to sing with. <laughs> uh, we've had the privilege of traveling since we were uh, young teenagers. Just the luck. Uh, no rhyme or reason in particular. And we've traveled separately all around the world together. Uh, we've been in so many different neighborhoods. Not enough of them. There's still so many places to go see. Uh, but we've had the chance to, to see um, the neighborhoods that... I didn't grow up in, you didn't grow up in. Uh, so that's the really rich ones and really poor ones. And we've, we've seen incredible things, but I think one predominant theme that we've seen are the children around the world, having our own children, uh, and that fierce um, tenacity that somehow comes as being a parent. You're gonna do anything for your kids. Um, we have adopted uncles who will do anything for our kids as well that understand that same kind of love. Maybe you have a kid in your life. Um, the children are precious in this world. And we've, we've seen something else in this world that generally the oppressed are the oppressed. The marginalized are the marginalized because the people with power are just too preoccupied with getting what they want as fast as they can. And I've been that person. I've had power and I've tried to take things that I want outside of its time. And really the call is for both the oppressed and the oppressor um, enemies to come home to the table of peace where somehow we stay at table together and share a meal. Wouldn't that be incredible? Uh, so this song is called Bring All God's Children Home. 
Fine. 
Music like that might light some fires. Mm-hmm. All right, some thank yous. Troy and Sarah, thank you so much. This was such, this is the perfect place to do this. Thank you. Make sure to go on arthousenorth.com, sign up for their email list, and you can get all, all the events. Maddie Reimer, thank you so much for coordinating all the details of this beautiful event, ticket sales and all that stuff, food. Thank you, Maddie. Such a great job. Uh, Annalise Groff, snapping pictures. Thank you, Annalise. So good. Alicia Little, merch table. You're the bomb. You're the best. Matt Rowe, managing Stephen Heidi. <laughs> we need Holy it. <laughs> mama. Good job. Aaron, thanks for mixing, producing this show. We're going to have this up sometime this year. So you can listen to it again. Um, and please follow my journey at steveweens.com. Um, I am always trying to create things that give people hope. So um, join me on that journey. Okay. Uh, my, the last person is my wife, Mary. Um, she's a strong force, and she helps me, and she grounds me, and um, she lets me um, journey with her and adventure with her and all kinds of fun stuff. So we've been married for almost 23 years now. Um, and I joke with people like from age... 35 to 45, I looked 35. Starting age 45, I started to look 55. So, I don't know why I, I mentioned that right there, because we're over time. Stop by the tables, buy some stuff. I see that there's still some brownies over there. And um, thanks so much for coming, everybody. Love you. In it together. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to This Good Word. If you love this podcast, there's three ways that you can support my work. One is by jumping on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisgoodword. You can become a patron at various levels and get lots of good free stuff, including free tickets to any live events that I do, signed books, and other stuff. The second way is to share your favorite episodes via Twitter and Facebook. Uh, email, however it is that you share content. Let some friends know that you love it. And then third is to go on iTunes and leave a rating or a review. So thanks so much, my friends. We are dust and breath. We are limited and limitless. We are human and holy, and we are in it together.